0: This is ASEN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit ase.n.ac.uk. Well, it's my great pleasure to introduce Professor Joach Larson, uh, who will be giving the uh, 20th uh, annual Ernest Gellner Lecture. Uh, his topic is on the nation and the city, urban festivals, and national uh, nationalist mobilization. Um, I won't read out all his uh, awards and positions. Uh, suffice it to say that uh, Professor Eliarsson from the University of Amsterdam is one of the most distinguished um, cultural historians of nationalism. He has got many interests. Uh, Irish intercultural history, the theory of national stereotyping, the history of romantic nationalism in Europe, and uh, the history of cultural relations in national peripheries and border zones. Um, he's written voluminously on various aspects of nationalism. Uh, his major monograph, uh, National Thought in Europe, uh, was the subject of debate. Uh, a number of years ago, which appeared in the journal Nations and Nationalism. Uh, But he's directing a huge research project uh, in Amsterdam uh, as part of the the Centre, the Study Platform in Interlocking Nationalisms, which uh, is uh, charting and analysing romantic nationalism in Europe. as, as I said, a gigantic e- uh, uh, enterprise which will result in, in encyclopaedia and, and multiple, uh, multiple m- monographs. Uh, so it, it's a, g- a great pleasure then to uh, introduce Professor Leersen. Um There won't be any questions after the lecture, but you're all invited to the reception afterwards on the fifth floor of the old building, um, at which there will be a, re- a reception and. Uh, if you've got any questions uh, about the lecture, I'm sure uh, you'll, you'll be very uh, glad, to, uh, glad to, to speak to you. So, without ado, Professor Lipson. Um
1: Thank you very much, John, uh, for that lovely introduction, which places me under a rather heavy mortgage, um, and uh, for the LSE in having me here and, and thus uh, allowing me to place my name under the aegis of surely one of the intellectual giants of the 20th century, which is a signal honor. Um, And um, it was, of course, by a little reflection on on Ernest Gellner that I I kicked off uh, on my idea of what I would talk about today. Um, And regrettably, perhaps, uh, great scholarship is often remembered anecdotally. So Newton is about a falling apple, Archimedes about sitting in a bathtub and Bartley for having provoked Dr. Johnson into kicking a stone in order to prove the materiality of things. And so too the work of Ernest Gellner has stuck in the mind mostly for sound bites. Nations maketh man, and do nations have navels. It is indicative, perhaps, of the frequency with which pithy phrases and nugget insights peppered his more sustained analyses and typological models. One remembers Gellner's work, not only for the brave and necessary insistence, that without modernization process, there would have been no nationalism, but also for the nuggets along the way, the notion of hostile imitation, the concept of exoeducation, and some razor-sharp obiter dicta on the nature of diaspora nationalism. I want to take as my cue another Galnerian anecdotal soundbite, his allegorical juxtaposition of the empire of megalomania and the emerging nation of Ruritania. It still stands as a useful, ideotypical blueprint for many Central and East European national movements and late imperial conditions, from Prague and Budapest to Sofia and indeed Kiev, I wrote this a couple of months ago, little did I know. And its heuristic value is enhanced by that ironic wink at Anthony Hope's high Victorian romance, the Prisoner of Zenda*. And I too, in fact, will talk about the moment when history was wearing a rose, you'll see later on what I mean by that, And beyond that, perhaps, the operetta state of Franz Lehár's the merry widow, representatives of that cheerful pre-1914 middle Europa, which was Gellner's own lost fatherland. Coming, as I do, from Europe's more Western parts, I want in the following lecture to add a third party to Gellner's Central and East European-based duality. Alongside the empire and the region, I would like to place the city. No single city in particular, any more than Ruritania is a specific region, or megalomania a specific empire, but the essence of urbanity, and indeed something that links different cities into something larger, a concatenation of cities, a Hanseatic urban league we can call urbania. I want to look at the interaction between city culture and nationalism in three forms, each exemplified by a different set of cities. To begin with, there is national assimilation, the way in which a city's culture is assimilated into the 19th century process, which I call the cultivation of culture, by which the state wraps itself in a cultural identity. One could think of Amsterdam, Frankfurt, Nuremberg, Venice, or indeed Florence. But my chosen example will be Orléans. A second type I will address with you is what I call modular replication. The spread of national ideas, practices, or gestures from one city to another, or to others. My chosen example will take us from Geneva, by way of Toulouse, to Barcelona, and from there to other cities, Valencia, San Sebastián, La Coruña. And thirdly, there is a process we can call national reticulation, the tendency of cities to link up into federative networks. My example here could have been the growth of the Welsh Stedford, or indeed that of modern football competitions. But I shall concentrate on the spread of male choirs in and beyond Germany. I will begin, then, with the national assimilation pattern, how city culture merges into the national cultivation of culture. In the course of the 19th century, as the state develops towards the nation state, it increasingly wraps itself in cultural identity. By the same token, that cultural identity becomes a national identity. Languages become, by default, national languages. Otherwise, they become dialects. History becomes national history. Education becomes national education. This process, aptly summarized in Gellner's definition of nationalism as a desire to achieve congruence between the political and the national unit, occurs both at the level of the existing state. You can think of ancient states like Denmark, Holland, or France, which attempt to impose cultural uniformity and see themselves as the instrumentality of the nation. And you can also see it at the level of emerging national movements whose ambition is to rise beyond the status of the province or the subaltern level of the provincial and to become national in their own right and to achieve for their culture and their homeland the status of fully fledged nationality. All parties agree that for culture to be taken seriously it has to operate major league at national level. However. In studying national movements and nationalist ideologies in the Low Countries, I became aware that in some cases, the nationalization of cultural identities as Dutch, Belgian, Flemish, proceeded by co-opting an older pre-national stratum of city cultures. The formation of modern states in this part of Europe was a slow process, punctuated by regime changes and territorial upheavals, renegotiations of borderlands. Now, what provided a sense of historical continuity Resided either in the realm or church history or dynasties like the House of Orange, but most of all in city cultures. In Flanders, the glories of the medieval and early modern past were a matter of urban pride and interurban rivalry in cities like Bruges, Ghent, and Antwerp. In Holland, the memory of the Spanish Revolt was remembered in the civic setting of Amsterdam, Haarlem, Leiden. The public events, the printing houses, the remembrance of the historical heroes and villains the schools and the Latin schools, the public institutions, all these were organized at the municipal level. And at that city level, they maintained across all regime changes an unbroken continuity, providing 19th century national historicism, both with its repertoire and with its institutions. My chosen example, however, comes from France, There, Jeanne d'Arc has been a national saint, a cherished icon, of miraculous heroism in adversity, at least since her canonization in 1920. Her figure is replicated around the country in dozens of large open-air statues, church altars, election posters for the Front National. It amounts to a typical case of banal nationalism if we define that as the lingering 20th century after-effects of 19th century national consciousness raising. The present-day lieu de mémoire was infused into the French public sphere in a process that we can date pretty precisely as starting in, 18, in the 1840s. It was kick-started by Jules Michelet's lyrical celebration of her life and the addition of the original trial records by Quicherat. Her figure was then propelled into the arena of national symbol politics by the prelate Dupont loup who became the intellectual leader of the church faction in French politics. Um, and after 1870, 1871, she became an icon of national concord even between church and state, as we can see in the Third Republic, adopting her feast day as a national holiday. However, this national frame is only part of the story. Its beginnings lie back much further and are locally much more specific. The launching pad from which dupont launched Jeanne d'Arc into national orbit was the city of Orléans. There, centuries before the first national statue, her first monument was put up as early as 1458, as significantly earlier, centuries before she became a saint and only a few years after she had been cleared of the charge of heresy. The city of Orléans maintained her memory in a municipal cult into the 19th century. Indeed, the national saint was a, in the 19th century a transfiguration of the older municipal hero. And you can see how Dupendu actually uses Orléans. He becomes bishop of Orléans in 1849. Shortly thereafter, he's made a member of the Académie Française. And he then uses the platform of the annual homily in her praise to uh, mobilize public opinion uh, and to actually spread the word that Jeanne d'Arc is the heroine that France needs at that particular moment. And he uses the Orléans antecedents as a launching pad. Now, this pattern is not unique. Cities prided themselves from the late Middle Ages onwards on their viri illustres, or uomini illustri, or in Joan's case, a Virgo illustra, Petrarch in Arezzo, Erasmus in Rotterdam, Gutenberg in Mainz, Luther in Wittenberg, Ivan Gundulich in Dubrovnik. Such figures were later in the 19th century, that's the time when these statues were put up, promoted to national heroes. But the city cult preceded that and made it possible in the first place. Many of the cultural traditions, which we now frame as simply and unquestionably national, turn on closer inspection out to have urban origins. From southern Spain, the Moros y Cristianos festivals, to here in England, Guy Fawkes Day. Nation building in 19th century Western Europe is in many cases the conglomeration of city cultures into a new national frame. This process is most noticeable in that portion of Europe which had the strongest city cultures. The Low Countries, the German Free Imperial and Hanseatic cities, and the Italian city republics. Florence, for instance, becomes a cultural jewel in the Italian crown, which we can see in the Dante commemorations of 1864, and its city academy, the Accademia della Crusca, gets to play a national role. That academy, founded in 1583, had promoted the works and the language of Dante, and had published a dictionary of purified Dantesque Italian in uh, in the late um, 16th century, which incidentally inspired Richelieu's scheme for the Académie Française and its dictionary. In 1808, Napoleon returned the favor and charged the Academia della Crusca, then under his reign, to prepare a new edition of its Vocabulario. That work was completed in the 1860s and appeared with a glowing dedication to King Vittorio Emanuele, celebrating the Risorgimento and trying to paper over the role of Napoleon in the process. It had become Italy's national dictionary. What cities handed to the new nation states besides academies are the institutional outlines of a Habermasian public sphere. Playhouses, associations, coffeehouses, printing presses. Things that are neither Ruritanian nor megalomanian. The municipal awareness of the citizens of those urban centers foreshadowed Republican thought even in the Ancien Régime. Witness Jean-Jacques Rousseau calling himself a citoyen de Genève on the title page of his Du Contrat Social. We find that in every edition that came out during his lifetime. The word bears pondering. The notion of citizenship now unquestionably a national political category, was calced on the urban notion of being an enfranchised corporate member of a city. The city of Geneva brings me to my second part, which deals with modular replication. So from Florence to Geneva, we might see some form of a pattern taking shape, city hopping, intercity connections. It was in Rousseau's city, Geneva, that an influential historian was active during the Romantic period. Simon de Sismondi. A remarkable forerunner of area studies, Sismondi, citoyen de Genève. He did many things. I I gave you the bullet list there. He wrote on political economy, colonialism, uh, and on many things in cultural history. Besides, and he had a close interest in democratic and republican traditions and a special affinity with the southern climes of Western Europe, southern France, northern Italy, the midi. He wrote a literary history of that area, highlighting the glories of the troubadours, and was among the first to draw attention to the Albigensian Crusades as a genocidal exercise in feudal brutality. Sismondi also turned his spotlight on city academies like the Accademia della Crusca, a strong presence in northern Italy. And his history of the Italian city republics, culminating in the Lombard League, was reprinted in the early 1830s under this telling title and makes the book one of the intellectual jumping boards for the Risorgimento. One of the oldest surviving city academies, older even than the Italian ones, was spotlighted by Sismondi in the course of his literary history. The Académie des jeux floraux of Toulouse, founded as early as 1323, and that makes it, I guess, one of the oldest surviving city academies in Europe, it, this had been an association of poets dedicated to the pursuit of literary elegance and the refined expression of courtly love, what was called le savoir, something which we may approximately translate as the elegant craft. The Académie subsisted across the centuries as part of Toulouse's city culture and maintained its prestige by bestowing its honors periodically on famous literati from further afield. We encounter names like Nostradamus, Ronsard, Voltaire, Chateaubriand, Alfred Vigny, Victor Hugo, down to Maréchal Pétain. These honors
0: traditionally
1: took the form of a flower wrought in precious metal, a rose or eglantine. Hence, the literary festivals were known as the Jeux Floraux, or the Floral Games. The Académie could also bestow on an especially accomplished author the title of master of the elegant craft maître en guet savoir, or maître est jeu, est jeu, master of the games. Victor Hugo's literary career, which eventually took him to writing the musical Les Misérables in 1862, was launched by the fact that as an aspiring 17-year-old poet in 1819, so at a very, very early age, his poems won him two prizes at the 1819 Floral Games. The Golden Lily, for his poem The Statue of Henri IV, and the golden amaranth for The Virgins of Verdun, which I'm still looking forward to reading. It marks the beginning enmeshment between the floral games and Romanticism. At that time, when Sismondi drew attention to the institution, it was a harmless literary vanity. But in the climate of the day, it achieved fresh interest for being such an unusual survival of the medieval cult of courtly love, which, of course, in Romanticism, spoke to the imagination of that particular generation. Following Sismondi, the poetry of the troubadours was being rediscovered by important scholars and philologists like Renoir and Claude Fourier, whom many of you know better perhaps as the editor of the Greek um, uh, eclectic songs, the Champ Populaires de la Grèce Moderne, um, and they were interested in, in Provençal or Occitan literature as the com- as France's first flourish of vernacular culture, Liter- literature not in Latin. It's proliferated, very romantic myths, proliferated about the amorous origins and the refined literary flirtations at the roots of this um, floral academy. The woman who putatively gave the first flower awards to charming poets, Clémence Isor, was depicted in many a medievalist painting and statue from the mid to late 19th century, in a taste which in France is called le style troubadour, with the French rediscovery of these troubadours, Toulouse was put into the historical spotlight. But the pattern was not that of Orléans. Toulouse, after the prizes, prizes given to Chateaubriand, Vigny, Victor Hugo, remained unassimilated, a fly in the ointment of French national culture. While Jeanne d'Arc was, part of, was becoming part of a French myth, Toulouse remembered, alongside Clémence Isor, the Albigensian Crusades and the persecution of the Cathars. A historical uh, narrative, once again prepared by Sismondi, gained ground to the effect that the old, rich cultural tradition of the south of France had been snuffed out by ruthless northern feudal power. Indeed, the linguistic policy of long standing was reversed. In 1539, French had replaced Occitan as the official language of the contest after 1839, a tendency developed to readmit Occitan and even to reserve a special prize to poetry written in the Languedoc, which as a result began its trajectory of revival. To be sure, this do- did not become an Occitan risorgimento. The Toulouse Floral Games remained a regionalist variant within an overwhelmingly French embeddedness. When a revival of Occitan was undertaken, the center of that movement was, as we shall see, in the Provence around Frédéric Mistral in Arles, not in Toulouse. Even so, Toulouse made Mistral maître et Jeux in 1895, nine years before he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. So the story of this Toulouse institution seems paradigmatic for many city cultures in the periphery of Europe's emerging nation states. Venice, Sevilla, Bremen, York, Maastricht, Jascha. Dubrovnik, or Novi Sad, cities that half-heartedly feed their historical culture into a state in which they find themselves on the periphery feebly cultivating their local distinctness in order to console themselves for their provincialism. But the story doesn't end there. Across the Pyrenees in Barcelona, Sismondi had also been read, and Catalan speakers felt themselves as different from Madrid as Occitan speakers felt different from Paris. The words Catalan and Occitan are anachronisms. At the time, these idioms, these local idioms, were very fluidly uh, called different names. I'll, I'll go into that. Uh, but th- these are the, the modern appellations. Uh, many a, uh, a writer from south of the Alps called his language, which, na- which nowadays we would call Catalan, Limousin. So it, it's any sort of uh, local language that's neither Spanish nor French could you know, pick on any appellation. It was recalled by intellectuals from the city of Barcelona that in the 14th century, there had briefly been a Floral Games in Aragon. In fact, it was the Academy of Belletre in Barcelona, again, again a city institution uh, of the type you know, showcased by Sismondi, which began to ha- hold papers on that topic. Like, did we have Floral Games as well? As the Toulouse Floral Games were attracting fresh interest, 1840, 1841, part of that interest um moved to Barcelona, focused on Barcelona, and people thought we can do that as well. Intellectuals in and around that city were in a special position. The constitutional framework of the Spanish monarchy was feeble. The city was beginning to catch the tide of industrial modernity, its city ramparts were broken down, there was expansion, and there was a great increase in print media and theatre life. These authors who made use of the new cultural ambience and media used the Catalan language, first in a subsidiary position alongside Spanish, and later in overt competition with it. In many cases, they deployed deployed it as a precious connection with a medieval golden age, when the counts of Barcelona reigned supreme as monarchs within their own fief. The language they often called Limousin, and they saw it as a dialect variant of Occitan, the sister language north of the Pyrenees. And all these variants were considered A cultural and historical continuum, and they could proudly claim droit de cité in the tradition of gay savoir and troubadour poetry. Troubadour fever was in the air. In 1836, the Spanish playwright Antonio Garcia Gutierrez, an adept of French Romanticism, wrote a popular history play called El Trovador. It became lastingly famous because it was used as the libretto for Verdi's opera Il Trovatore, and that opera founded first Barcelona performance in 1854, when things were just beginning to hot up there. Meanwhile, in 1841, Antonio Rubio wrote a a cycle of verse in troubadour style and in the Limousin language of Barcelona, under the pseudonym Lo Gaiter de Llobregat, the Piper from the Llobregat River, on very Walter Scott. Barcelona, in one and the same gesture, developed an empowering sense of modernity and a growing medievalist nostalgia. Rubio's romantic historicism was followed through with a more national focus by Antoni de Boffarroi. An archival worker, he published historical dramas and historical legends in the mode of Walter Scott, both in Spanish and in Catalan. He, like Rubio, affected the use of the troubadour self-image. His collection of new verse in the local language appeared in 1858 under the telling title The Modern Troubadours. That local language, however, got definitely its fresh name consolidated by Boffarui, who rejected, in the preface, the use of the term limousin and instead proposed Catalan, which until then had been predominantly a regional uh, uh, term. He did so in a public lecture held in 1857, so once again we're in the mid-1850s, on the topic of the Catalan language from a historical perspective, arguing that Catalan was not a side branch of Occitan, but an independently descended successor language to Latin, and as such could stand as an equal in the Romance language family besides Spanish, French, and Occitan. And it was an independent, fully fledged vehicle, not only for daily intercourse, but also for troubadour poetry, old and new. Beaufarou had, had in these years been contemplating a competitive imitation of the newly burgeoning Jeux Floreaux of Toulouse, arguing in repeated press articles that in the Middle Ages, Barcelona and the crown of Aragon had also had their floral games, and that Barcelona owed it to itself to reactivate this dormant tradition. In 1858, the scheme was launched, and the first revived Jocs florals were held in Barcelona. All the national Romantic writers competed, saw their various works crowned with various precious metal flowers, and the most prominent saw themselves elevated to the status of mestre and Saber. I hope I get it right once Barcelona went, again, modern and medieval in one and the same gesture. The Jacques Florals became the most important cultural event of the metropolis, and a galvanizing point for Catalan cultural nationalism, well before the rise of political autonomism. Indeed, the authors involved in the Jacques Florals were bilingual, using both Spanish and Catalan. It was a momentous decision for them to have the games held in Catalan only. And that was a massive consolidation of the local language as a literary vehicle, a highly prestigious thing for the public sphere rather than just a dialect for carnivalesque kind of or small scale uh, communication. And from Barcelona, the formula proliferated further. In 1868, a newly founded literary journal, and the title was, wait for it, Lo proposed to seed the Barcelona events in other parts of the Catalan lands, so as to spread the message of Catalan activism and mobilize new poets into what was now becoming known as a renaissance, a renaissance. In fact, floral games had been held in 1859 in Valencia, where that city half drifted back into the ambit of Barcelona event afterwards. A bistable system, I won't go into the minutiae. Galicia followed soon after. 1861, we see Xochos Floraes held in La Coruña using the um, Gallego language and preparing the appearance of the first volume of poetry by Rosalia de Castro and the first history of um, Galicia by Manuel Murgia. It marked the beginning of the Gallego uh, cultural revival and the Rishur de Mendo. You see how the, the copycat element uh, plays itself out in various locations. And in San Sebastian, the journal Euskal Herria organized successful floral games in 1879, giving it the Basque name of, excuse me, it's Hostaldiak, and involving literary, musical, and sporting competitions modeled both on the Toulouse and the Barcelona examples. These Basque events were consolidated into a standing organization in 1882, the consistory of the Basque Floral Games of San Sebastian, which, as its statutes put it, aimed, and I quote, to ensure by all means within its reach the preservation and propagation of the Basque language and to stimulate the cultivation of its special literature and, as far as its resources permit, to preserve and propagate our popular music. There was even a backwash north of the Pyrenees, not to Toulouse itself, but to the Provence, where the revivalists around Frédéric Mistral were flourishing. Mistral had published his great masterpiece, Mireille. I've shown you the title page on an earlier slide. Uh, in 1859. That same year in Barcelona, Boffarou's opening address to the first four-all games held up Mireilleau as an example for the Catalans to emulate. But in the event, it was Barcelona that provided the role model. The Jacques florals themselves were taken up by the group around Mistral, who began holding their own Jeux Floraux in Apt in 1862 and in other cities in the years after. The pattern of all these floral games is quite different, again, from that of Jeanne d'Arc. The cult of Joan, first locally rooted in Orléans, becomes generally French, much as the game of rugby from its local roots in a public school ramifies to become a national and then even international game. The place of origin is a launching pad, lost from sight as the cult takes flight. Maybe golf aficionados still remember St. Andrews, but you know, the, the place where you come from is not necessarily important in the, in the spread of the pattern. But in the case of the Floral Games, such a nationalization never occurs. The events here remained rooted in the civic ambience of peripheral municipalities and, if anything, were used to underscore the city's exceptionalism, its non-participation in the state frame. A mobilizing formula migrates from one provincial city to another without becoming an integral part of either the French or the Spanish national frame. Indeed, what these cities share is their standoffishness against the central capital. There was one moment when Spain tried to co-opt the floral games into the, uh, into the official nationalism of the Spanish state in the 1880s when the Queen visited, and there was immediately a refusal on the, Sp- on the part of Barcelona intellectuals to have these people from Madrid come in and hijack the event, and a counter-event was set up. There you see something very interesting which is not like Orléans and Jeanne d'Arc at all. The end result of this Shared standoffishness and that shared mobilizing institution is not a homogenized cultural space, but rather what I would consider a granular constellation of linked cities. This is what I call urbania. And the tendency to of cities to concatenate into such networks I call reticulation. It's something different from diffusion because of the granularity. It takes place in specific spots. It's not just an aspecific fluid or miasma emanating over a region. It, it, it needs specific anchorings. This reticulation process is not, is not a new one in Europe. It antedates the rise of the centralized state and is often in competition with it. The Lombard League, the Hanseatic League are obvious medieval examples, and Sismondi drew attention to them. And the fact that such leagues were fervently celebrated by the Romantics may indicate that the possibility of a reticulating spread was never far removed from the mindset of the floral games once they were revived after the appearance of Sismondi's work on city republics and southern romance literatures. To be sure, the reticulation between La Coruña, San Sebastian, Barcelona, Valencia, and Toulouse was a weak one. Each city remained a center within its own separate region. The fact that they worked alongside each other rather than in concert amongst each other means that they never meshed fully into something like a Hanseatic League. There were, to be sure, attempts to bring the troubadours from both sides of the Pyrenees together. In the early years, there were fervent fraternal meetings, mutual verse dedications, and poetic exchanges between the poets of the Provence and the Catalan ones of Barcelona, minorities from different countries, recognizing their common culture and their common marginality. On some occasions, there were festivals to celebrate a Pan-Latin spirit. There was an invitation from the Bishop of Perpignan to host the games in Roussillon, which was forbidden by the Spanish authorities. Um, Mistral dedicated poems to his Catalan fellow poets in the troubled climate of Spanish politics. And there was a centenary of Petrarch in Avignon in 1874, which was used as a manifestation of Pan-Latin solidarity. But even during those festivals, it was already becoming clear that the two branches of troubadours were drifting apart. Barcelona had profited from the floral games to affect what we might call its Catalan ethnogenesis. It had rediscovered its medieval golden age. It had rebranded its local romance dialect into an autonomous Catalan language. And as a cultural metropolis, it could now, within its own gravitational field, which, uh, which reached as far as Valencia and the Balearic Isles, challenge the hegemony of Madrid. The city was also embarked on a trajectory of intense modernization away from troubadour nostalgia, and with an intensifying modernism and anti-Spanish nationalism at one and the same time, in the 1890s. North of the Pyrenees, however, the trend was rather one of a subsidiary localism within the French framework. Toulouse remained content with its provincial status. Arles became the haunt of French painters in search of bright colors. The setting of Léon Daudet's Rustic Tales of Bizet's l'Arlésienne. The difference, indeed, is that between the development of nationalism and of regionalism. The case of the floral game cities show all the degrees in which regionalism can or may not intensify into nationalism. There is a sliding scale from Toulouse to Valencia and La Coruña to Barcelona and San Sebastian. There are other cases, however in which a strongly reticulated network of cities can develop into a coordinated national movement. And this brings me to my third urban variant. That one is uh, about nationalist rather than regionalist reticulation. One could think of various European examples. One can think, I mentioned it before, of the impact of the Estedford festivals in Wales. And Estedford may be described as floral games for Celtic bards rather than for romance troubadours and the bard may be described as a troubadour in a wet climate. His, his, his gay savoir is correspondingly less gay and more earnest. <laughs> Welsh Estedfords were revived in various localities in the 1820s and became a moving festival, taking place now in this and then in that Welsh town, in the process bonding those towns together into a joint Welsh cultural movement. After some decades of a polycentric local run-up, the Estedford became a national Estedford, in 1861. However, my main example of this type of urbania comes from Germany and is centered not on quasi-medieval revivals of troubadourism or bardism, but around the modern bourgeois sociability of the male choir. Now, this type of phenomenon is a trans-European one, as ubiquitous as the sports club. Two European types have become general all over the continent and have in fact been exported beyond it. The French style Orpheon, starting in, in, in Paris, and the German style Gesangverein or Liedertafel. Both types proliferated vigorously across Europe, including of course Wales, which is a strong choral tradition, and Catalonia, with an equally strong choral tradition. Such a proliferation is not or almost never a matter of spontaneous generation, as if All over the map, fresh wheels are being invented all the time by different people and coincidentally taking similar form, or as if, because I'm working a lot with my hands, I suddenly develop calluses on my heels as well, you know, it doesn't work like that. The spread of male choirs is not a matter of parallel responses to similar circumstances. It is to a large extent a matter of communicative procreation. For that reason, understanding the emergence of choirs purely in terms of context and circumstances, is insufficient. Choirs respond not just by the social conditions of the time, but also by each other, by going viral, following the example of other choirs, and in turn, setting the example for other ones again. This institutional self-replication is relatively straightforward within a single societal setting. The case of the Lower Rhine is an example. This area, the left bank of the Rhine between Krefeld, north of Cologne, and the Dutch border, had been annexed by Prussia in 1815, and the establishment of no less than 120 Liedertafel and Männergesangvereine male voice choirs, in this small but densely populated region can be considered as a single, sustained, non-granular process. But for that very reason, it wouldn't do to see this simply as a representative sample of Germany at large. Germany as a whole was much less a a homogeneous space, and this might blindside those historians who unquestioningly assume that the state in which we work nowadays is the categorical unit for the tracing of historical developments. Germany at the time was, of course, divided over different autonomous states with different constitutional structures, different political regimes, different religious confessions, different degrees of urbanization and industrialization, different party political landscapes. Nonetheless, the choral movement proliferated from town to town within each German state, and indeed from one German state to another. What course did this proliferation take? In the north, and in the Prussian Rhineland, it was in in particular the private Liedertafel, established by Zelter in Berlin in 1808, that became a prototype. In the south, the first initiative by Negeli in Zurich, 1810, found widespread dissemination through the relay station of Stuttgart, which Nageli had visited on a lecture tour in 1819, canvassing the male choir as the ideal interface between Volksleben, popular sociability, and artistic education. The Stuttgart Liederkranz was founded on Nageli's example in 1824, and in turn inspired copycat initiatives in Ulm, Munich, Esslingen, Frankfurt, Schweinfurt, and elsewhere. Looks a bit like the floral games, right? Meanwhile, Berlin spin-offs had already taken root in the north. Foundations in Frankfurt and the Oder, Leipzig, Göttingen, Weida, Thüringen, Magdeburg, Dessau, Münster, Hamburg, Danzig, Minden all date from between 1815 and 1824. Between the hives of Berlin and Stuttgart, there was a zone where the, the spreading Zelter and Negeli models encountered and overlapped. Franconia and the southern part of the Prussian Rhine province. Some of the more notable foundations in the post-1824 decades include Koblenz, Bremen, Nuremberg, Bielefeld, Aachen, Trier, Paderborn, Mannheim, Cologne. In this diffusion, well, I would call reticulation, of choral foundations, we see that such institutions, locally anchored though they are and fed by the social ambience of middle-class city life, operate translocally and are involved in regional and transregional communicative dynamics. The foundation of regional and ultimately national federations, in tandem with the regular organization of mutual visits, regional festivals, and exchanges and journeys of a variety of choirs for different places take place. An association between the choirs of Hanover and Bremen formed the nucleus in 1831 of the League of United North German Choirs. It attracted other local choirs and organized a series of regional festivals, which I won't enumerate, but there are little stars in that particular region. And similar patterns can be traced in the same decades in Bavaria, Thuringia and Franconia. And these federations, in turn, entered into a nationwide meta-federative National League in 1860, same time when the Estedfords and Wales were becoming a national Estedford. So the organizational history of these choirs, in a sense, offered a template and a prefiguration of Germany's political unification at a time when that was not yet a political reality. The choirs themselves, in their repertoire and in their public manifestations, also constituted themselves as platforms and proclaimers of a nationally German identity. Not of a local one, but of a national one. As Dietmar Klenke has shown in his study Der Singende Deutsche, Mann, the repertoire was to a large extent patriotic and intensified in its patriotism from the 1840s onwards. So once again the same decades in a totally different setting. Songs like Die Wacht am Rhein, The Watch on the Rhine, which most of you will know from the movie Casablanca, where it is drowned out by the Marseillaise in Rick's Cafe, right? Um, spawned in the famous Rhine Crisis of 1840, were disseminated by virtue of being placed on the repertoire of student fraternities and male choirs, and, let me stress this, by being performed. They were spread quite literally by word of mouth, by being sung convivially in what one might call, in contrast to Benedict Anderson, embodied communities, people in face-to-face proximity, a bit like the performative spread of old Lang Syne, or the Spanish wave in football stadiums. And vital for that performative spread was the city ambience, and indeed the existence of a reticulated urban network, cities brought into contact. Among other things, by the shared pursuit of common cultural interests, the national urbania of German male choirs had crystallized, crystallized about a certain set of important, say, Woodstocks, formative places and events when a lot of people came together and celebrated the fact that they came together. The federal choral festivals, the Zengerbundfeste. Such gatherings, like the ones in Cologne in 1840, Würzburg 1845, Nuremberg 1861, Breslau 1906, always mentioned proudly the arrival of delegations from the far-flung borderland cities, such as Schleswig or Ghent in Flanders, celebrating their own powers of long-distance reticulation. A bit like the early years of the Eurovision Song Festival, when it was really exciting to hear, "Here are the points of the Istanbul jury." You realize that, "Wow, we're really bringing things together here." that is always mentioned in these festivals. Here are the people from, you know, Danish threatened Schleswig-Holstein. Big cheers. Um, so uh, they were celebrating their own power of reticulation and riveting the German space together by their co-presence at, of all these cities in one place, and usually culminating in the choir grand finale, fusing all these voices and origins into one resounding chorus. This is the arrival of the Flemish guests at the Cologne Fest and an outing to the Drachenfels. The repertoire is nowadays forgotten, and at best enjoys an unspecific notoriety as horrible chauvinistic kitsch. The verse of stalwarts like Arndt, Maasmann, Rueckert, Schenkendorf, Geibel, or Felix Dahn sets to four-part harmony. Anthems like Die Wacht am Rhein, Freiheit, die ich meine, Der deutsche Mann, or Julius Otto's Soldatenleben, The Soldier's Life. It was an important corpus in the mobilization and nationalization of the middle classes, but it is nowadays neglected both by literary and by social historians, known only generically, not in its actual content. Yet the rhetoric was enthusiastically belted out by hundreds of fervent petty bourgeois amateurs, tenors from Kiel, baritones from Danzig, basses from Mannheim. Even in 1861, a quiet year a year without much at all by way of a real political threat. The assembled German choirs at the National Song Festival of Nuremberg were working themselves up into a formulaic fortissimo, quote, and if the foe approaches, then a united Germany will march to the Rhine to do battle for the Fatherland, unquote. The line, who we Germans, we march to the Rhine, was drowned in loud acclamations. The Franco-Prussian War was as yet 10 years in the future. But it was culturally foreshadowed and emotionally pre-programmed through this self-stoking, self-amplifying choral flag-waving. The Rhine repertoire had become popular in the wake of the Rhine crisis of 1840, but it did not die out as that crisis receded. Rather, the choral movement got stuck in its Rhine groove. The rhetoric, as it diminished in topical importance, increased in intensity. The songs were formulaic gestures, hackneyed strokes, vacuous grandstanding. But in their relentless performance and re-performance, they established a Pavlovian link between anti-French warfare over the Rhine and German unification. That link found its most voluminous expression in the Niederwald monument overlooking the Rhine, celebrating the victory over France, the annexation of Alsace-Lorraine, imperial unity, Begun in the Flush of Victory of 1871, it gave on its plinth the entire text of the song Die Wacht am Rhein, the 1840 evergreen now cast in bronze. This recycling and this lasting deep penetration of nationalist propaganda into the furthest reaches of German society is demonstrated by the reminiscences of a soldier in the Bavarian army on his way to the Western Front a 100 years ago. Although his army is on the offensive towards Paris, by way of Flanders, he still believes he is rushing through the defense of the Rhine, a rather sh- shaky geography, and the entire army becomes a type of male choir. Read along with me. Finally, the day came when we left Munich in order to start fulfilling our duty. Now, for the first time, I saw the Rhine as we were riding towards the west along its quiet waters, the German river of all rivers, in order to protect it against the greed of the old enemy. Where did he get that? Then through the delicate veil of the dawn's mist, the mild rays of the early sun set the needlework monument shimmering before our eyes. The watch on the Rhine roared up to the morning sky from the interminably long transport train, and I had a feeling as though my chest would burst. The ex-volunteer who wrote down his reminiscence about this singing at the dawn of a summer morning in 1914, some years after the war, he wrote it down in a book entitled Mein Kampf. Some years later, again, he would organize festivities in Nuremberg that were and were not reminiscent of the old meetings. Urbania had become megalomanian. I come to a conclusion, and that conclusion will take us back to Ruritania and to the transnational. One could, of course, see these urban-based activities in the broader context of other forms of festivals, other forms of middle-class sociability, sports, commemorations. I don't propose to develop that line of inquiry at this point. Rather, I would like to position Urbania between the Galnerian poles of rurality and megalomania, or rather between provincialism, regionalism on the one hand, and imperious nationalism on the other. City culture can go regionalist, as we saw in the case of Toulouse, or merge into the nation-building agenda of the states, as in the case of Flo- uh, Florence or Orléans, or become the platform of a separate assertion of nationality, as in the case of Barcelona there are many possible slippages between those different modalities of the cultivation of culture. Now, one of the most interesting tasks I I see in the study of 19th century national movements is in looking at these negotiated slippery transitions between regionalism and nationalism. Organizing that analysis around the anchoring point of the city rather than within the framework of the state might yield interesting results. The ramifying reticulation of municipal sociability does not stop at the state's borders. The floral games take place in a region that straddles different states rather than being a subsidiary part of one. This insight is worth keeping in mind, since we now realize that the diffusion of nationalism is, to a very important degree, a transnational process. Much as the fashion of choral societies spread between German cities and states, it also spread to cities on and beyond the outer edges of the German lands, Antwerp and Ghent, for instance. And in other settings, the German format could spark unexpected developments. In the Baltic lands, for instance. Although the Baltic provinces had all come under Russian rule, city life there was still dominated by the German townspeople and their culture, their city cultures. In 1851, German-style choirs were founded on the model of Königsberg in Riga, Dorpat and Reval, Dorpat and Reval now being called Taftu and Tallinn. Significantly, these foundations occurred at precisely the time when Latvian and Estonian cultural awakenings began to stir, stimulated, if anything, by the paternalist sympathetic interest of local Baltic German intellectuals. The as yet largely illiterate vernacular culture of Estonian and Latvian populations, they had only been recently been enfranchised from serfdom, um, and there was no flourishing literacy there, was eminently suited to the social practice of choral singing with its ambience of performativity and face-to-face conviviality as an embodied community. The song festival was ideally suited to Estonian and Latvian nationalism. In the later decades of the 19th century, the song festivals organized by Estonian and Latvian revivalists took flight. A first all-Estonian song festival was held in Tartu in 1869. To commemorate the 50th anniversary of peasant emancipation, with 845 singers and an audience of 10 to 15,000. The movement gathered in strength with further festivals held in 19, 1879, 1891, down to 1913, as you see, and from 1873 onwards, the queue was taken up in Latvia as well. The Baltic Germans had delivered the inspirational, the organizational design, the community bonding and nation mobilizing function. The native populations fitted these vehicles made in Germany with their own ethnic payload, Estonian, Latvian, Lithuanian. The Baltic choral movement became a very broadly based cultural mass rally, driving the accelerating national movements of the post-1900 period. And they remained an enduring social presence throughout the 20th century. This emerged in 1989 as the most powerful survival of pre-Soviet public culture. It was above all in choral demonstrations, the so-called singing revolutions, that the power of the USSR was challenged publicly and collectively, and the nationalist mobilizing power of mass singing found its most extraordinary manifestation. At this moment, nowadays, the Laulupidu or songfest of Tallinn, which draws many hundreds of thousands of people, has been recognized by UNESCO as part of the immaterial world heritage. Estonia would at first sight look at the dresses, have been a typical case of Gelnerian Ruritania, inventing its identity against megalomanian rule. It fits Gelner's model to a T. But the hundreds of thousands of Estonians joining into a huge embodied community perpetuate in their cultural nationalism also a different run-up. If you look at the uh, the dress, the high hats, the student fraternity outfits, and in fact the white, blue, and black of the student fraternity gave its national flag colors to Estonia. Um, you realize that not only Ruritanian, the uh, run-up to Estonian nationalism is also to some extent Urbanian made in Germany. Thank you very much.
2: The Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism is an interdisciplinary student-led research association founded by research students and academics in 1990 at the London School of Economics and Political Science. We seek to fulfil two broad objectives to facilitate and maintain an interdisciplinary global network of researchers, academics and other scholars interested in ethnicity and nationalism and to stimulate, produce and diffuse world-class research on ethnicity and nationalism. We do this through our global membership, our two leading journals, Nations and Nationalism and Studies in Ethnicity and Nationalism, our newsletter, The Ruritanian, which provides key updates on information in the field, and through our program of events. Our YouTube channel features videos from our annual conferences, seminar series, lectures and debates. You can find us online at lse.ac.uk forward slash on Twitter at ASIN events, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash